All right, so we are in uh, Acts chapter 8, and we got just a taste of <coughs> chapter 8 last time, uh, and we'll pick up in the last couple verses of Acts 7, and we're with Stephen, and we talked about the mob, and the mob is risen up, and it says in verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus receive my spirit and falling to his knees he cried out with a loud voice lord did not hold this sin against them and when he had said this he fell asleep and saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in jerusalem and there they were all scattered throughout the regions of judea and samaria except the apostles Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So before we talk about the content of these verses and the ones that we're going to, just a, a little comment about the structure of this passage. And if you start to look at Luke as as a, a purposefully written narrative by someone who knew what they were doing, we're starting to see this pattern Well, where Luke will maybe introduce a character and then maybe talk about that character and then maybe come back and revisit that and so forth. So if we go back to, we did this uh, last week, if we went back to the first part of Acts 6, we hear about these seven people who were chosen to serve. And we heard about Stephen. It says in verse 5 of chapter 6, and when they, and what they said pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then we heard about Stephen. And then next in Luke's list it says, and Philip. And then he goes on to the others. So he's introduced those people. So we've heard about Stephen. And now we're going to hear about Philip but he has to mention Saul so he he, int he introduces Saul as being there witnessing and even more than that approving of the execution and then there's verse 2 which goes back to Stephen to talk about his um, burial and his, his the mourning and obviously a sign of great respect and then back to Saul again about what Saul was doing and the concept of the persecution so the latter part of verse 1 it says and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria this scattering made a lot of people who hadn't planned to be missionaries, missionaries. They were scattered. There was persecution. And it's interesting, if, if you see, they scattered except the apostles. So there, were, there was still a remnant church in Jerusalem, and the apostles stayed there. And part of the reason for that, people have kind of speculated, but it appears that most of the people who were scattered were those who were first targeted for persecution. And 
you know how there's how rumors go through different communities we've heard how you know there's uh, a tougher stance on certain groups of people uh, moving into the United States so word gets out in some of these immigrant communities and all of a sudden hey we've got to be careful now the numbers of people moving into the country illegally are going down all that sort of thing word travels so remember there were Jews but then there were what the, we called Hellenistic Jews remember I was talking about that Jews that had more of a Greek flavor and they probably talked differently different customs probably different dress so if you're gonna go after somebody for persecution remember this is a mob mentality it's always easier to go after somebody who doesn't look or sound like you right so the people who were most persecuted who were most scattered early on were those Hellenistic Jews many of whom were like Stephen or like Philip um, who were not the Jewish ish of the Jews or rather of the new Christians so these people were scattered and especially the Hellenistic Jews the Greek Jews and they went it says throughout regions of Judea and Samaria um, so what about Samaria we're going to talk a little bit about Samaria because that's where most of our action takes place now we we remember that uh, the concept of Jews um, didn't look all that kindly on Samaritans uh, we remember the story of the Good Samaritan of course uh, also a story by Luke um, but but I had to review what the basis of that animosity was and back in our study of Isaiah this all connects of course remember there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom the northern kingdom was captured first right anybody remember who captured the northern kingdom somebody said it the Assyrians so the Assyrians come and we know that they captured a bunch of the people who were living there but anytime there's like war and conflict there's a lot of this intermingling so there were pagan people who settled in Syria and intermingled with the Jews that were left there and that was the start of a rift between the northern and the southern kingdoms between um, what in New Testament days was was uh, kind of the um, the Judea the remnants of the southern kingdom uh, the true believers so to speak versus the Samaritans who were intermingled with all these Gentiles which were left over from the Assyrians and even after the southern kingdom was captured by the Babylonians after the Babylonian exile and the southern kingdom people come back and they redo the temple with Nebuchadnezzar and all that they didn't allow those that mixture of people who became the Samaritans to participate in the new temple so this again really created a rift there so you translate forward three or four hundred years or more um, and we still see the echoes of that split that happened so long ago those of you that have been in 
areas of war and conflict and stuff like that, the changes last a long, 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 long time. And, and that's what had happened here. So the Samaritans, um, some commentators have said these were, uh, how does it say, half-Jews. Um, and they had their own kind of version of worship, their own kind of version of their holy mountain, their own kind of version of things, but it wasn't, wasn't ideal. So it's interesting that in Acts 1, verse 8, that, that verse that we hear, that you shall go and teach who I am, Jesus says, to all these areas um, in Jerusalem, Judea, and the next one listed is Samaria. And then that's the last one that's named, and then after Samaria, it's the whole world after that. So, so that's where we're heading. So here's the persecution. Now you'll remember um, John the Baptist had a trip through Samaria. Jesus famously had the trip through Samaria, Samaria, the woman at the well incident and so forth. But that's where we're heading. So in verse 4 it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So what does that sound like when you hear about all this good stuff happening and you know, there's demons being cast out and there are people being healed and there was joy in the area. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus, right? It sounds like, remember our studies back in Mark and Jesus was hanging out all around the Sea of Galilee, which interestingly is not that far from Samaria. I don't know what it is with demons up in that neck of the woods, but there's a big presence there apparently. But that's what this sounds like. Right? So Philip is, he, he didn't want to go there, but, you know, people were after him, literally. And here he is, and, you know, these people need to know Jesus. I'm going to tell them. And signs and wonders were part of that. And there was so much joy. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. I don't totally understand it, but some of the commentators say this is kind of a corruption. Um, the Samaritans had their own word for Yahweh, their own word for God, and apparently this title that Simon had given himself kind of sounded like that God-like title. So he thought a lot of himself. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. For a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, that as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So, you have this 
magician, probably involved with the occult. Uh, we know that there is a certain type of power associated with that. Um, even he takes notice. Now, we know the verse elsewhere in scripture where it says the demons also believe and tremble, right? So we'll, we'll be confronted with this question in a moment. What does it mean when it says even Simon himself believed? Was this, hey, I believe there's something big going on here. I believe this is a God thing. Or was this the type of belief that is actually saving faith, you might say. Faith um, in the whole package. Jesus died for my sins. I'm a sinner. That type of belief. Um, and we'll see that he might not have had that degree. And of course, we know baptism doesn't save you. Verse 14. So now we shift from Samaria back to, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem. That's what's going on. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down for them and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, this is Peter and John, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, this is an interesting passage because we have this group of people and we can take it from this other part where Philip was preaching good news about the kingdom of God and so forth and these people believed and were baptized. I think we can tell from Luke's tone that these were, except for maybe Simon, these were true believers. These were new Christians. But yet, they had not yet received at least the outward manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So, so time has passed, right? And this wasn't like they got a text that stuff was happening in Samaria. You know, travelers, report would have had to get back and, you know, assemble an entourage. And now Peter and John go up. So I don't know if this took weeks or months. But at some time later, Peter and John get there and, and assess these new converts. And they lay their hands on them and they receive some outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We don't really know what that was, but it was some sort of thing where everybody could recognize, whether it was like at Pentecost, where they start speaking different languages, or whether it was something else. We don't know. Um, so this is, this is interesting, and, and we know from just how we brought up that, um, that some denominations really uh, say that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that always happens at conversion. Uh, that it's an extra thing that you have to look for and pray for and um, specifically the Assembly of God denomination, if you read the fine print of their statement of faith basically says if you don't speak in tongues then eh, we're not so sure you're a Christian. That's kind of what it says. Um, and some of these passages in Acts, they would, they would use to support their uh, belief that, that this is a second thing that happens. Um, the case can be made, and this is one of the reasons why there's extra 
content on the on the uh, podcast today um, is 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 not really supportive as this being normative and so we'll go for uh, and and read this and then come back um, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands I'm in verse 18 he offered the money saying give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit but Peter said to him may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God so this is Peter's assessment of Simon's state I think he's <laughs> Peter's not convinced that he's a believer because he says repent therefore this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity and Simon answered pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me now some people say well does this mean that Simon is praying for forgiveness we don't know you could really take that two ways. You could say that he's scared because he recognizes where true power is. Or maybe he is repentant. We don't know. In verse 25 it says, And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So on their way back, Peter and John um, continue to preach as they make their way back to Jerusalem. And then, of course, they'll be giving a report uh, to the rest of the apostles there. So what about Simon? Well, I always learned something. Those of you who played, uh, who play uh, Scrabble or what's it, Words for Friends, Words with Friends, whatever it is on, online. Um, simony, S-I-M-O-N-Y. Did you know that was a word? So simony is a legit word and it means basically selling religious stuff for your own profit and this is where it comes from um, this was a big deal you remember the whole concept of indulgences we talked about the Catholic Church a little bit I'm not trying to be all anti-Catholic necessarily but um, they've got some baggage so across the river I think it was from Martin Luther um, there was a guy that was selling basically selling indulgences um, I've got this uh, let's see a guy named John Tetzel it says Tetzel even had a catchphrase which surely attracted the attention of German listeners I can't speak to German he's, but the translation it says as soon as you drop your money in the pot the soul of the person you pay for jumps right out of the fire of purgatory <coughs> so um if you believe that, you might be willing to pay up, right? <laughs> That's okay, Mama. I'm I'm tossing in a few coins there. Uh, good luck. Um, Peter was saying, "No way, absolutely not." This this verse twenty. But Peter said to him, "May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money." The Phillips translation says to hell with you and your money that would be the modern translation apparently 
But yeah, that's what he's saying. This is evil. Back to the dark place with you. Um, so, anytime you've got truth, the Spirit of God invading an area where Satan's kind of had a foothold, he's not going to like it. It's going to be some pushback. We know about spiritual warfare. Certainly believe that we do have an adversary who roams about seeking to destroy us. And uh, they came up against such an example. And the, um, the response was to speak the truth and raise up the name of Jesus. And that is always the case. So, back to this, back to this um, issue of receiving the Holy Spirit in this separate way. So why was it? One of the, one of the observations of a, one commentator I made was that whenever you see this happen, where, whether it was the groups of Pentecost, whether it was the laying on of hands to the Samaritans, We'll see in Acts chapter 10 where there's a group of flat-out Gentiles that receive the Holy Spirit. And then there's a, a fourth example as well. But in each case, it's happening with a people group. Right? And if we look at Acts as being a transitional book from before the coming of the Holy Spirit until the development of the church, it's a transitional time. You can make a pretty good case that, that these demonstrations of the evidence of the Holy Spirit were specifically to identify to the Jerusalem church and perhaps to all the others that this salvation is for every group. It was for the close followers of Jesus. It was for the Samaritans, for the Gentiles, and so forth. And it served a special purpose and should not necessarily be considered normative. Now, Acts chapter 10, we see that everybody gets saved and gets the Holy Spirit all at once. Right? Peter was there. It's like he's the witness to all this, to authenticate. And you remember what Jesus told Peter? I'm going to give you the keys and I'm going to build my church. So it's almost like if Peter says this group is okay, then it's okay. Not really, but, you know, people do look up to leaders and so forth. And so that kind of starts to make some sense if you think about this identified this people group as, as, as fellow partakers of the gospel um, and this special outpouring of the Holy Spirit kind of uh, was that extra bit of authentication. Um, for us in this day and age, that is not normative, this delay. Um, one commentator did make the great point, though, that there is great evidence in Scripture for getting more of the Holy Spirit in your life rather than less. And yes, do we, we receive the Holy Spirit when we're saved? Absolutely. But it is, is it possible to have varying amounts of how much you are filled? That's probably true, too. Well, that is true, too. I shouldn't qualify it. And 
the advice was it is not only appropriate but perhaps arguably even commanded that we continue to ask for more of the Spirit's influence in our lives. So that's an appropriate thing to prayer, or to pray rather. It doesn't affect your salvation, but it may well affect the effectiveness of your ministry um, as to what God has for you. All right. So, questions, comments on Philip and Samaria? statement they were baptized only in the name of Jesus Christ and they had not received the Holy Spirit I kind of have a little difficulty with that (laughs) yep Uh, (laughs) (laughs) okay um there's some uh there's some tricky ground here for sure and I got to thinking well you have to think a lot well in Hebrews we have this list of Old Testament saints we we assume that these people were saved and of course the way it's always explained is they looked forward in faith to Christ we look backward in faith to what Christ did they looked forward and then what about this in-between phase you know the at what point did the 11 true apostles at what point did they get saved everything about that I really scrambled my brain <laughs> when I thought of it. You know, when did they get saved? It was before the upper room at the Pentecost experience. It was sometime before then. But when was it? I don't know. You know, we, we know the Holy Spirit convicts us of a sin, and we know the Holy Spirit is involved with salvation. But yet, this extra thing happened with the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one confused by it. No, but uh, at least two of us are willing to admit it. Okay. I know after the resurrection, when Jesus came back and, and spoke to them, their lives changed. They took off and they no more fear, no more. They did. Um, you know, what about Thomas? Was he saved when he saw Jesus? Was that when he truly had that saving faith? I don't know. I don't know. I've talked to some Christians who um, they know the moment that they, to use Southern Baptist term- terminology, gave their heart to Christ. But then you talk to, or you read some of like C.S. Lewis writings, and he's not sure when it happened. Somewhere along there, he realized his faith was in Jesus, but he's not exactly sure when that was, you know? So um, it's interesting. All right, let's close and we'll go. Father, we thank you that you are a saving God. You are a redeeming God. And centuries before, when your promised land was split, In these days of Acts, you started to pull it back together. You started to heal those old wounds. You started to heal those old conflicts. And you started to create a new unity all around Jesus. And we thank you that we can rally around that as well as your sons and daughters. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.